Okay, first, we preach Christ Jesus and not ourselves, but ourselves, your genuine servants for Christ's sake. And I want you to know, since I'm your genuine servant, that my vacation was a working vacation, and I'd labored in the Word every day, even on the days when I swore I would not labor in the Word the next day. That became even more enriching. So I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, nor it is in man to direct his steps. So that's first. The second thing is this worship service, which when I pray for the services, I always pray for the worship service along with everything else. About the Lord and the meditations of our heart, I had been praying. My main prayer this past month has been, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, as a communicator of the word. And thirdly, I would like to thank those able four horsemen who stood in in my absence. I deliberately disengaged and allowed them to solo and allowed the, as Paul in Galatians, he left some instructors in the church to be able to teach sound doctrine in his absence. And I had some very competent instructors, and I thank you and the somewhat pale rider, Brian, had to bear the burden of a full-time pastor. What do you think? Are you glad we ordained you? Can you handle it? It was almost full-time. Not, you know what I mean? You didn't do the full thing. But, now, but Mrs. Messick, Jennifer, was, how was he to live with? He was a prince. Okay. You don't have to say of what. But, but that's, a, that's a sign of maturity. If he can still be lived with and he's still gentle and peaceful at home, then you know that he's doing the work of God. That's why I wanted to interview you. So I appreciate all. I've listened to some of the messages and was very blessed. I was telling Professor Sadar, Pastor slash Professor Sadar, let me just say that, that I was intrigued by his message on the selfish gene versus the selfless seed, which if you haven't heard, I hope you get. And Pastor Brown, I've heard one of your messages, and I'm going to hear the rest of them. And as usual, masterful and kind of prophetic, kind of the prophet's ministry. And also, my brother, my brother in grace, or brother-in-law, Phil Henry, for standing in one Wednesday for like 10 minutes. So I just want... That was good. Now, he did good. He always, he always does well. I just want to jab a little bit there. And... I want to also thank the congregation for keeping this space here a sacred space by your presence because you are the household of faith, the household that demonstrates the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and you carrying on fulfills my joy completely. A vacation is a time to vacate self, and so there's some painful vacating of Adamic ontology that occurs and must occur, in the, especially in instructors and teachers. And thanks to the staff and workers and prayer warriors for the deacons for carrying on smoothly. I was very impressed. If I just went home to be with the Lord, things would carry on very well here. That, that's very heartening to me. But I don't plan to. I mean, that's, that's not up to me. And my mother is doing well and sends her love, as well as my three sisters, all of whom congregated around her, and they all send their love and regards. Also... Doc and Lynn Andrews, Jim and Lynn Andrews, who now live in Florida, we connected with them. They're lonely without you. They're down there in in an outpost on their own in southern Florida, but we connected with them three times, and it was just a wonderful time of fellowship and rapport with them. So keep them in your prayers, and they were very grateful. Lynn was very grateful to get from the ladies' workshop the verses on USSJC. Keep them in prayer. Another thing. Since this is all about you, as the congregation of Christ, we are going to miss very dearly and said goodbye with tears, Chuck and Elaine Dowdy, who are remarkable in that they moved here from California 13 years ago only for one reason, the Word of God. And they remained here for 13 years, and as God's providence prevails in their lives, they're now led to go back there. And we had a tearful goodbye. And, it, and we're going to miss them. And Chuck and Elaine, we love you. And 
We'll send you pictures of these people because I know you miss them too. We're very grateful, and, and it just makes me know that it is we are members one of another. When one grieves, we all grieve. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. And we bear one another's burdens, and by doing this, we will fulfill the law as it was taken in hand by Jesus Christ, the law of Christ. So I'm very grateful. In my absence, I completed a masterful commentary on Galatians by J. Lewis Martin, who is one of the few commentators I've ever read who does not try to domesticate Paul and make him palatable to Western consciousness and to the religious spirit of the West. And Paul, Paul is a wild stallion. He wasn't meant to be domesticated. Almost every Western commentary I've ever read on Paul is an attempt to domesticate him. And you can't do that. He's a radical. He is, he is definitely a radical in his presentation of an apocalyptic gospel and a creation and humanity sweeping divine invasion of the human race. And I want to get into some of those things as I go beyond what I've read there, as usual in the Holy Spirit as I'm supposed to do. So please turn to Galatians chapter 5 to start with. I think it's the last verse Brian mentioned in the message I'm listening to now, part 4. This is better called Paul, and I think it's part 49. I sort of forgot how to do this, so God has to teach me once again. I'm but a child. I don't know how to go in or go out, and I still don't know how to do this. So it's total dependence on the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And please note a little bit of a tweak to this translation. Christ set us free to bring us into the realm of, of freedom. Christ set us free to bring us into the realm of freedom. And stay with Galatians 5 just while I insert John 8:36. Jesus said, "Therefore, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed." So we're talking about a freedom in reality, a true freedom. And then in Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, "For you were called to freedom, Brothers and sisters, only do not use this freedom as a base of operations. And that's exactly how that should be translated, not weakly and domesticatedly as opportunity. The word aforme is used by Thucydides, who wrote famously on the Peloponnesian Wars. And aforme means a military base of operations. Whether you know it or not, We are engaged as soldiers in the eschatological apocalyptic war. And the purpose of instructing believers by pastor teachers and evangelists, by those with a prophetic ministry, the purpose is to equip you for this apocalyptic warfare. The church is often thinks, thinks the church at large often thinks of an apocalyptic war that will be fought in the future. But as John said, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, but even now there are many Antichrists bearing a gospel that is not the one of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Therefore, he said, it is the last hour. The apocalyptic warfare is now. It began with the invasion, redemptive invasion, salvific invasion of creation and the human race by the triune God. And that invasion is D-Day. It's a day of deliverance. Now is that day of deliverance. And the church is that proleptic community elected as the Israel of God, as true Israel was elected, with a view to all of humanity, an election with a view to the inclusion of all humanity. Election is not to be viewed as an exclusive thing but an inclusive thing. Jesus Christ is the one who is unconditionally elected by God, and in Christ all will be made alive. And so his election was with a view to the inclusion of all. And so the election of you and I is also with a view to that. 
So you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use this freedom as a base of operations for the flesh. Now, the flesh, as Paul uses it in Galatians, is not the lower nature of man. It's not the sin nature of man. It is a cosmic, dramatic actor, a supranatural, suprahuman actor, and warrior in the apocalyptic war of the eschatological season. In other words, the flesh, along with the law itself, taken in hand by sin, are enslaving powers, as is death itself in sin. Jesus said to those who claimed to be free, because they claimed, ironically, to be politically free, and they were not. They were under Roman domination. But they claimed to be free, and Jesus said, you're enslaved if you are in sin. Sin is the great enslaver. So freedom that is true freedom is freedom from sin. Someone can be politically emancipated. Someone can be a slave of the times in which Paul wrote and be emancipated by his master, but still be under sin and still be therefore truly enslaved. So to be truly free is to be free truly from the enslaving power of the flesh and of sin. The flesh, as Paul teaches it in Galatians, is not the lower nature of man, but it is a supranatural actor in the apocalyptic warfare in which Christians are engaged. The only opponent that can defeat this flesh is the spirit whom God sent into our hearts. It's the spirit of the Son whom God sent into our hearts. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed because you are free indeed from a slavery indeed, which is to sin, to the flesh. Again, the flesh is not the lower part of the human nature. It is not the sin nature. The flesh in Galatians is a cosmic actor in the apocalyptic war in which we're engaged. And we are not the opponents of the flesh. The spirit is the opponent of the flesh. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when the sun sets you free, you are free in reality and in deed. And the spirit in whose presence there is freedom is the spirit of the sun. For God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts causing us to cry out, Abba, Father, causing us to identify ourselves as the children of God, bearing witness to our spirits that we are indeed the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. So Galatians 5.13 again, you were called to freedom, to a realm of freedom, Brothers and sisters, only do not use this freedom as a base of operations for the flesh, a cosmic and supranatural opponent in the eschatological apocalyptic war. On the contrary, by love, by love, be genuinely serving. That word duluo, often translated as slavery, does mean be genuinely serving as slaves, But it means rather to be a genuine servant, to be a true and genuine servant. As Jesus said, if anyone wants to be the greatest of all, let him be the servant of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, of course. On the contrary, by love, be genuinely serving one another. And look at verse 14. For the whole of the law in one sentence, with help from Lewis Martin, or Lou Martin as he's called. He was called to be with the Lord in 2015, I believe. His translation, I think, is proper. He says, for the whole of the law in one sentence has been fulfilled. This is the perfect tense of the verb plerao, the perfect tense. And it is important, as Brian said, to parse the verbs of the scripture. Plerao is the word, 
and it's related to the word pleroma. But it's in the perfect tense, which means that the all the whole of the law in one sentence summarized as you will love your neighbor as yourself has been fulfilled, has been fulfilled. And Paul, once again, as always, is referring to an act that has occurred. It is the act of Christ at Calvary. That is where the whole of the law in one sentence summarized in one sentence you will love your neighbor as yourself, was fulfilled. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He said in Matthew 5.17, did he not? Don't think I have come. Or basically, stop thinking that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill, plerao. And he did fulfill the law, the whole of the law, in one sentence. You will love your neighbor as yourself in his selfless giving act on Calvary. And so the serving that we have as genuine servants, one to another is a participation in that love, which continues in the church. Galatians six, two goes on to say, be bearing one another's burdens. And so you will fulfill in the future tense. The word is Anna which means again, you will fulfill again the law of Christ, which is the law as it's now been taken in hand by Christ. He who became a curse for us destroyed the cursing, enslaving element of the law and freed it to be the way that we are guided in our daily walk in the church, the body of Christ, the Israel of God. So be bearing one another's burdens, and so you will fulfill the law as taken in hand by Christ. Or fulfill again, the, the anaplerao is to fulfill again the law that has been fulfilled in the act of Christ. How can that be done? By a participation in Jesus Christ's fidelity and in his faithfulness. And then in Galatians 6.18 The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the only time in all of Galatians. And it's dangerous to compare Galatians with Romans because Galatians has to be read on its own. It's a distinct message addressed to a distinct situation. So you have to be careful of what is called parallelomania by seeing a parallel everywhere in Romans, which is a distinct, there was a distinct exigence for Romans as there is for Galatians. You have to be careful about comparing the two. But in Galatians, the only time Paul ever uses the word spirit for the human spirit, he uses it in the singular for the entirety of the community of the three cities in Galatia in which there was a church. A church is simply a community made addressable and able to hear what God is saying by the Spirit's baptism of that group into Christ. We are all baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, whether Jew or Greek, whether male or female. There is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. And that is showing something that is a radical, radical break from the old creation, including male and female. That's going to be something I have to teach with great care. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, the spirit in Proverbs twenty twenty seven, the spirit of man can be a synecdoche for the whole of, of a person, the entirety of a person. When Jesus said to the Father, I commit my spirit to you, into your hands I dismiss my spirit, he was talking about his whole being, including his body, and he committed his body to the Father. I urge you, therefore, to present your bodies, which is your whole self, to God, which is your reasonable service, Paul said, based on the mercies of God. And so the Spirit can also be called the candle of the Lord. It's the candle that only God ignites. And therefore, the faith that is spoken of many times, as in Romans ten seventeen, and as also Brian alluded to, is the faith that's ignited by God. It is not our faith. 
It is the faith that is ignited by God. One of the things I'm going to try to do with the greatest possible fine-tuning and care is to remove a potential bone of contention about people that just don't want to give up the idea of their personal faith somehow requiring from God a reward called justification. There is believing, and as I said last message a month ago, the believing is to be placed in its right place. But unconditional grace is what he's speaking of in Galatians 6.18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul ends Galatians like John ended Revelation. With the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to a specific group. And he's saying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In the previous verse he said I bear in my bodies the scars and the marks of Jesus Christ. Meaning He got to the place where it wasn't the media that was the message, but the messenger was the message. And that's where we all aspire to be. And that's a a far-off aspiration for me. But to have Paul say, I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And yet not I. It is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And then would say, It is Christ in me speaking to you, and Christ is in you. There's quite a remarkable thing there where, unlike the famous saying of the 20th century, the media is the message, the messenger becomes the message, and you are a living epistle written not with ink but by the Spirit of the living God. And so this is talking about an unconditional grace that ignites the human spirit Our faith does not curry the favor of God and require him to reward us with salvation. The faith is ignited just like God lights the spirit as a candle. The faith is ignited upon the message, the the report that is given. As Isaiah 53, 1 says, and Romans 10, 17. Now, I want you to see these things because the Israel of God, which was really the foundational insight that God gave to me in the the 21st century, is still bearing fruit in this series as it did throughout Revelation. And again, Revelation is just parallel to Galatians in every way. Paul opens up with the apocalypse of Jesus Christ that he received the gospel, not from men nor being taught by a catechetical group of instructors, but rather by an apocalypse, an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. It begins as Revelation does. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.1. Paul begins Galatians with the apocalypse of Jesus Christ in Galatians 1.12 and 1.15 and 16. And as John ends with the new creation in Revelation 21, Paul also ends with the new creation in Galatians 6.15. For it is not neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither the law nor the not law avails anything, is anything at all. But what's really something is a new creation. And so peace and mercy be upon all those who walk according to this transcendent precept, even to the Israel of God. I was glad to see Lou Martin say the same thing in a translate Galatians 6.16 the same way I did after reading 577 pages and getting to the end of his book, that he said the same thing that I said, that the translation isn't and to the Israel of God as if the Israel of God is something other than the church of God, but even to the Israel of God. And that's... That was very heartening. The Israel of God is still bearing fruit as a prolific insight because Israel is an addressable community. Listen up, Israel. Israel is, among the nations, an addressable community and able to hear what God is saying. And in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, coupled with Leviticus 19, 18, what God is saying is this. 
The Lord your God is one Lord, and you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all that you have. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul realized that loving your neighbor as yourself was the one sentence that summed up the whole of the law. The one sentence that summed up the whole of the law. Because if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, it's already presupposed that you love the Lord fully and with all that you have. You see, unconditional grace requires nothing from man in his Adamic ontology. Even his repentance and believing is rubbish. I remember Richard Wormbrandt, the one who wrote Tortured for Christ, who was tortured as a clergyman by the Russian communists in Romania for 14 years. And he got out, and he still retained a sense of humor. He was not well, but he spoke on stage, and he says, you must repent of your repentance. And I remember him saying that, and it was so wonderful. And he, then he said, I am like the prophet Haggai, and I will stand on my watch. And he says, what I'm going to do is stand on my watch, so I don't know what time it is, so I'm going to go endlessly here today. So he, was, he had a great sense of humor, but he hit on something that's remarkable. God doesn't ask for the repentance and the believing of man and his Adamic ontology, but listen, the same unconditional grace requires everything of the person with a freed will who is in Christ. Because only then is a person able to respond. In other words, unconditional grace alone, not conditional grace by any means, that turns you into a domesticated servant of this world and of the flesh. I'm talking about a freedom indeed in which your will is freed. The gospel has nothing to do with your free will. It has everything to do with God's will to save that ends up freeing your will. And once your will is freed in Christ, you are then enabled to an unconditional surrender. Unconditional grace has to be maintained if there's going to be an unconditional surrender of the will to God because God requires everything. And the unconditional grace of God is the only thing that requires and receives everything from us. So those that are fighting this are actually fighting an unconditional and total devotedness to the Lord, which only unconditional grace can call forth. If I may, I'd like to slay another sacred cow. Here it is. God is a gentleman. He does not invade or violate your free will. You ever hear that one? That's, you know what that is? That's a defense mechanism to defend and keep God, defend oneself and keep God at arm's length. Here's my answer to God is a gentleman. First, God is not like a man. God is not a man that he should lie, says Numbers twenty three nineteen. Nor is he like a son of man, any mortal being, that he would deceive. So first of all, God, the Holy Spirit, is not a gentleman because he doesn't invade the human will. God is not gentle like a man because he invades precisely the realm of the human will. He precisely invades the realm of of the human will. A man may make plans, but the disposition of the plan is of God. There, I know, O oh Lord, that the way of a man is not in himself. And we have to be saved by grace and through a faith that is not of ourselves. Whether you translate that faith as the faithfulness of Christ or as the faith elicited by the gospel, in neither case is it our own faith. God is not a gentleman like a human gentleman. He is gentle in the sense that David said, his gentleness has made me great. He is gentle as he invades the realm of your human will. If it was up to your will to be saved, you wouldn't be saved. It's God's will. Now, I had this experience with my Uncle Norm. Uh, my Uncle Norm is someone whom I almost borderline idolized as I was a kid. He looked like James Garner. I used to call him Rockford, the Rockford Files. Real 
he was an awesome guy, and he's, he's still in Florida, and he visits every Friday morning. I call it Fridays with Norm, not Tuesdays with Maury. But when I was down there many years ago, when my Aunt Gail was still alive, the one who saved me from the trains, I remember distinctly being at the Olive Garden in Florida and mentioned just offhandedly something I was teaching about, and Norm said to me, you will never convert me. And I was like, I wasn't trying to convert you. You know, your other nephew, Greg, the atheist, he's trying to convert you. He's the evangelist for atheism. My favorite brain surgeon, former brain surgeon, genius atheist, Greg. But in my last conversation with him, I found out something. Suppose that you're preaching the gospel to someone as I've often done, as you've often done, and you're explaining it to them and you say, well, Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead and he's now seated at the right hand of God. You're telling them facts that they can't empirically substantiate, that they can't rationalistically substantiate. And so they may say, even if the Holy Spirit's involved in your proclamation, and he is, they may say, I don't believe it. I can't believe it, or they may try to believe it and never be assured that they've believed enough. So they'll have that frustration of the guy in Mark 9, 24, Lord, help my unbelief, because they never know if their faith is enough. And so you're left in a kind of a quandary, and especially if you start telling them about hell, they're going to say the hell with you then. But then here's the, here, but what if you tell the man the gospel, as I did with Norm in our last conversation, two conversations ago, and he's, he's a strong-willed person. He's his own man like anybody else is his own man. He's, he's a phenomenal person. But I said to him, you know, <clears throat> it's often been said, because he he's in his third reading of Insight, and he started to read The Deliverance of God, that other monster book, and he'll, take, he'll tackle it three or four times. I said to him, one of the most remarkable things that we're discovering here is that we are not justified by faith as the whole Lutheran idea, justified by our faith, but that we are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's all I said. And then I said, and we see God now as a God not of retributive justice, who is committed to coercive violence on people who don't believe, but he's a God of endless benevolence unconditional love, unrestricted grace. You know what happened? God kindled Norm's faith because it was in Christ's faithfulness. It was something he never had to think about again. He didn't have to say, is my faith enough? He said, Christ's faithfulness is enough. So what did he do? He believed. The gospel kindled faith, and I saw that happen before my eyes. And Norm, who is not in any way, a person who shows emotions or he's always been the most matter-of-fact man. He said, I will never be the same from this moment on. And he said, you just took a burden off my shoulders. That was, I didn't know how much it weighed until it was taken away. And that is an example. The whole reason, if, I, if a month in Florida was for that one moment, that's enough for me. The gospel preached in its reality, in its totality, elicited, ignited the faith, a faith that you never have to question again. It's amazing. It was, it was the most, one of the most unforgettable experiences I've ever had. And around the same time, I was reading a quote from William Law who had cited by Hayes' famous book, which I recommend, called The Faith of Jesus Christ. William Law said this, Suppose one man to rely on his own faith and another to rely on his own works. Then the faith of the one and the works of the other are equally the same filthy rags. And that's, exact, that's what I've been saying, and here's, he said it in a single sentence. And Jim will come up and show me a tape. I have this tape of this guy. He's a wonderful PhD theologian. He said in 10 minutes what you've tried to say in 49 hours. Now, Jim always does that. He humbles me. He's, he's the great humbler, the humbler. And 
as you'll often hear me say in the parable of the sower, after I preach the word, Jim will come around the corner and I'll quote Jesus as saying, then cometh the devil. <laughs> now, so all in jest, we all know that Satan is from Ohio. So how about Samuel, Col- Samuel Taylor Coleridge? He was a British poet. He wrote most famously the rhyme of the ancient mariner. He was also something of a, a theologian, also cited in Hayes. He said, quote, quote, Christian life receives its shape and character by entry into a divine intent. Sounds like Pastor Brown's message. A divine intent and activity, first of all embodied in Christ, insofar as Christian life may be summed up as a life of faith, The individual Christian's faith is a participation in the fidelity of Christ. Who said that? Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who along with William Wordsworth, and his words are worth listening to as a poet, started the romantic movement of poetry in Britain in the 18th century. He is the one that got the point. The individual Christian's faith is a participation in the fidelity of Christ. So really, it is a life of faith. We walk by faith, Paul said, and not by sight. We do live by faith, but our living is a participated, a participation, we could say, in the fidelity of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point. And I want to close with this. This is I don't know, ever know where to enter into the water when I come back. I got a month full of doctrine rolling around in my soul. So it's like going into a pool. Do you go in the deep end and swim to the shallow end? Do you go into the shallow end? Go to the, I spent a lot of time in a pool. That was just take one of those noodles and sit and look at the sun for hours. I needed it desperately, but. But it doesn't matter where you go into the pool. It doesn't matter where you enter the scriptures. It doesn't matter where you dip your foot. It's all good. It's all good. But unconditional grace asks for nothing from man in his enslaved Adamic ontology. He doesn't want that man's repentance. He doesn't want to reconfigure that man into an obedient automaton God's unconditional grace asks for nothing from man in his enslaved ontology in Adam but God's unconditional grace requires and receives everything from man in his liberated ontology in Christ that's why Paul says glorify God in your bodies which belong to God Glorify God in your body, some manuscripts say in 1 Corinthians 6.20, and in your spirits, which belong to God. And present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's God asking for everything, not just your body. You present your body as a living sacrifice in order to demonstrate what the will of God is. You're giving everything. You're part of the Israel of God who is loving God with all that you have and all that you are. Unconditional grace doesn't ask for a thing from man in his enslaved condition in Adam, but it asks for everything and requires and receives everything from man or the man or the woman who is in the liberated ontology of Christ. It's not a matter of your free will. It's a matter of God invading the orb of this cosmos, including the will of the Adamic ontology. So I'm glad God overrode my will so that I can say today, not my will, but yours be done. And I can say that freely because my will is now freed. It is only unconditional grace. So if you buck at unconditional grace, you're actually bucking against an unconditional surrender of your will to God. You're actually holding yourself back from God. It's only unconditional grace that can claim all of mankind and create the Israel of God who loves God and who loves his neighbor as himself. Unconditional grace does not ask for repentance and belief of man in his Adamic ontology. Unconditional grace frees man from the Adamic ontology to be faithfully obedient 
in a shared participation with the obedience of Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us to make for God a people who are enthusiastic for good works. In other words, a liberated people. You think you're free? You're truly enslaved. He who commits sin, he who practices sin, is the slave of sin and truly enslaved. The son makes you free. He makes you free and liberated from the flesh as a cosmic supernatural actor. From death, from sin. That's truly freedom. So to the slogan, God the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, he will not override or violate your free will, I would reply with the sword of the word that is going to get bloodied as it jams into this sacred cow. I like Isaiah 48. Cursed are the shepherds whose swords don't draw blood. The sword of the word has to draw blood. Has it drawn blood here? I think maybe it has. But if you're coming after me, we have the Army, the Marines, and the Navy right in the front row, so don't even think about it. I know things about people. Eventually, they come after the servant of God and succeed, but that's only so that the servant of God can rise from the dead. So then, I would reply that God is not a man, but man's maker. He's not in a man. The way of a man is not in himself. And it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. So God is not a gentleman like a human gentleman because he's not a man, but he's man's maker. And that he is not gentle as a man is gentle. He's gentle as God is gentle. Man's maker and redeemer who invades the enslaved human will. God has the right to invade the enslaved human will and free it. You couldn't do that yourself, and neither could I. To bring redemption, deliverance, and liberation, and to effect the freeing of the will, and therefore a transformation. Now, that principle is something that is, was inarticulable to me until I was able to back off and step away just for a little while. It was, I couldn't articulate it, so I'm going to say it again. To the slogan, God the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, he will not override or violate your free will, I would reply that God is not a man, but man's maker, and that he is not gentle as a man is gentle, but gentle as God, man's maker and redeemer, who invades the enslaved human will to bring redemption and liberation. And so, bye-bye to a stubborn slogan. Sounds so right. Oh, yes, God is a gentleman. He will not invade the space of your... Yes, he will. He did. He does. Of course he does. Your will is enslaved, and God invaded the space of your enslaved will to free your will. That doesn't violate your will. It frees your will. It... It frees you from an enslaved will. God requires, therefore, everything from a freed and liberated will. That's why Paul said, hey, listen, given all these mercies from God, I I urge you, present your body as a living sacrifice. Put everything on the line. Be the Israel of God that loves God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, body, and all that you have. Because you're free to do that now. The law has been taken in hand by Jesus Christ and fulfilled, and now you will fulfill the law of Christ as you walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Walk in the spirit, and you will not. I guarantee it, Paul said. The teachers there said, be circumcised, and you will not fulfill the impulsive desire of the flesh. Paul says, walk in the spirit. And you will not fulfill the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is a supernatural actor that can only be confronted and overcome by the supernatural actor called the Holy Spirit, whose power is ultimate. The power of the flesh is formidable. The power of the spirit is freeing and ultimate. I I won't tell you, but 
If you don't domesticate Paul, the way he ends his epistle is really something. Because he basically, I'll just, well, I'll give you a hint. What the heck? Might as well hit the ground running. And be mischievous and say that, like, I, I would never mention that it was Kathy McClory's birthday Thursday. Last Thursday. Or Dave Badshaw's, for that matter, in the same day. Or, you know, but I, I, I'm going to be a little bit mischievous by saying that Paul said about the teachers that were troubling the Galatians that they were preoccupied with their penises because they, ins- they insisted on circumcision. And that's what Paul was saying at the end of Galatians six eleven to 18. They're not only he said, not, he suggested this, not only are they preoccupied with penis, their penises, but they're preoccupied with yours. And then he said, from now on, let all these guys leave me alone. I bear in my bodies the scars, not circumcision scars, but the scars of persecution. You know what persecution serves to do? And there are 215 million Christians under persecution right now as I speak. Persecution only serves to give evidence of the true identity of the church. For as in the days of Ishmael and Isaac, he who was born after the flesh persecuted him who was born from the spirit. Even so it is today. Even so it is today. Those who are born of the spirit are always persecuted by those who are born of the flesh who declare some kind of jihad or holy war on those born of the spirit. Those born of the flesh persecute those born of the spirit, as is evidenced most magnificently in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So in closing, therefore, only unconditional grace can call into existence a people who are wholly devoted to God. Only unconditional grace can call into existence a people who are holy, that is completely devoted to God. We've been called by God in his grace. I marvel, Paul said, that you are so soon defecting from him who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel. And you're no longer obeying the truth by being persuaded by these teachers. We have been called by God in his grace. We have been called into existence as a new creation. By God's unrestricted love, by Jesus Christ's unconditional grace, in order to have communion with the Father and the Son in the Spirit. As 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, May the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Unconditional grace calls for everything from the unconditionally liberated, from the unconditionally truly freed. Unconditional grace calls for everything. The radically liberated human being. For as the scripture says, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is God's now. And I urge you by the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice. This is an unconditional devotedness to God brought about only by the mercy and the unconditional grace of God. The Israel of God then is a community called into existence as a radically new creation in Christ Jesus. Why do people long for union? Why does a male long for union with a female? Why does a female long for union with a male? Because we're not all whole where female and male are not an issue anymore, which will be the resurrection. We'll see that. Lewis Martin, Galatians page 573, says the new creation is embodied in Christ, in the church, and thus in the Israel of God. That's Lou Martin. Page 574, he said, God's new creation is not a romantic haven 
I love the way this guy talks. It's not a romantic haven in which the individual can hug himself to sleep. It is embodied in those who, recreated by Christ's love, serve one another in the new community of mutual concern. Galatians 5.13, God's Israel, he says. The Israel of God continues to be a fruitful, prolific insight. And speaking of inclusios, which we will include our message in, in Galatians commentary on page 569, he said, as Paul pronounced a gracious blessing on the Galatians in his prescript, Galatians 1.3, so he closes in a similar manner the word grace providing summary of the way in which God is setting things right in Christ without requiring a precondition of any sort on the part of human beings. Then he quotes 1 Thessalonians 5.28, 1 Corinthians 16.23, or doesn't quote him, but cites them, 2 Corinthians 13.14, Philippians 4.23, Philemon 25, and Romans 16.20. So it's unconditional grace that asks for nothing from the enslaved Adamic person but asks for everything from the truly freed and liberated person in Christ. So Father we thank you and we pray that your unconditional grace will reign in Tetelestai Phalanx and that you'll grant me and others the grace to teach and instruct and to communicate that which is necessary for daily life in the church in this time of eschatological apocalyptic warfare, something that's not pushed off to the future, is something that was initiated with the invasion of God into this realm in the cross of Christ. And we bear that cross, and we are instarated by it, and we are enabled to put on the full armor from God and to resist as we are enabled in our free will to be totally devoted to the Lord. May this unconditional grace reign. For I ask it in Christ's name and according to his merits. Amen.